Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Asia-Pacific Perspective. Of course, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and as always, we are joined once again by Brock West on the other side of the Asia-Pacific region there in Australia, where he's keeping track of everything going on in the region at his blog, APPerspective.net. Once again, if you haven't checked it out, please do so. It is continuously updated with the latest developments in this region, all the news that's fit to print, and much more besides. Uh, Brock West, thank you so much for joining us as always. Thank you very much for having me back on, James. It's good to be back as always. And as always, we have uh, three important developments to cover on Asia Pacific Perspective this month. So let's get right into it. And the main story that has been uh, kind of at the top of the headlines has been the recent protests and tensions that have been escalating between China and Vietnam over, a, uh, d- over the deployment of a controversial oil rig. Um, we'll take our first story here from The Guardian. It reads, at least 21 dead in Vietnam anti-China protests over oil rig. Quote, at least 21 people were killed and nearly 100 injured in Vietnam on Thursday during violent protests against China in one of the deadliest confrontations between the two neighbours since 1979. Crowds set fire to industrial parks and factories, hunted down Chinese workers and attacked police during the riots, which has spread from the south to the central part of the country following the start of protests on Tuesday last week. The violence has been sparked by the dispute concerning China stationing an oil rig in an area of the South China Sea, also claimed by Vietnam. The two nations have been fighting out a maritime battle over the sovereignty, and that battle has now seemingly come on sh- come onto shore. Uh, the second story, James, is China vows to keep operating oil rig as opposed by Vietnam. From Channel News Asia, quote, a top Chinese general vowed on Thursday that his country would protect an oil rig in waters contested by Hanoi that would ensure that it continued to operate despite the angry protest that I just mentioned there in Vietnam. Now, James, the deployment of this Chinese oil rig came around the time of the most recent ASEAN summit in Myanmar. And apart from the lukewarm condemnation of China's actions, the uh, ASEAN itself is proving once again to be rather a toothless tiger, So, which is not really surprising given the economic ties uh, that connect a lot of a- ASEAN smaller nations to China. So, um, However, the main spark of these particular protests seem to be because of the oil rigs deployment within Vietnam's economic exclusion zone. Um, now, that's a term that the viewers of Asia-Pacific Perspective might be familiar with, with the deployment of the ADIZ zone or that identification zone of China and Taiwan uh, a few months ago. But with every other country drawing imaginary lines in the Pacific, the, uh, the eastern South China Seas have become so muddied with these exclusion and identification zones that I think in a way it nullifies their legitimacy. Basically, the only countries who really give a crap about the zones are the one are the, their own zones themselves. So, which essentially I think leads to a bit of a free-for-all, which is what we've seen continue to happen over the last few years. Uh, and China being the biggest in economic uh, and military force within the region, it's naturally obviously being the most assertive. So it's always these type of events that unfortunately can are ripe for further escalation. So. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know. In the words of the young bloods, why can't we all just try and love on each other right now? <laughs> if only. Well, it, it seems like last last month, of course, we were covering the uh, the signing of a pact between the powers here in the South China Sea, and uh, this is going to be some advancement towards understanding in naval matters and what have you. But for every step forward, there's a giant step back, and here we are. Unfortunately, on the risk of another major clash um, to do with territorial disputes in this region, and 
Unfortunately, this one seems even more serious than some of the ones we've seen before, and threatening to bring military tension right to the head, and certainly diplomatic pressure is going to come to bear um, on this issue, as, as we've seen, as you noted, with those protests that are now going on in Vietnam. I think this is going to be a pretty major issue. And um, you mentioned the, the delegitimization of these uh, economic zones, or what have you. Well, at any rate, I, I don't know about that, but uh, these are, are, are well-defined and, and uh, parts of international relations that are codified in in the United Nations and all of that rigmarole, and for whatever that's worth, it still has been a codified part of international relations for many, many decades, these uh, economic exclusion zones. The fact that uh, China has put its uh, oil rig in those waters is a pretty blatant sign that, unfortunately, it is the might-makes-right philosophy that is holding sway in this area right now, and if China gets away with this, then there's really nothing stopping them from going the rest of the way with Indonesia or Malaysia or the Philippines or any of the other um, countries they're having territorial disputes with right now. So this is a pretty major development, and it really is kind of pedal to the metal in terms of whether or not these other powers in the region are going to do anything about this, or they're just going to let China kind of take over the, uh, the, the region de facto. And and, uh, and one interesting development that co- could come out of this is that uh, there, uh, there has been talk in recent years of Hanoi perhaps allowing a U.S. naval presence in Cameron Bay, which may be fast-tracked because of disputes like this one. They've been holding off because that was seen as a major, that would have been seen as a major provocation of China. But if China's provoking them, I'm sure they'll just turn around and do the same right back. So again, this is a huge escalation. We're going to have to continue uh, uh, seeing how this develops and whether or not China would will back off, but it really doesn't look like that at this point, as the last that I saw, they had sent 80 ships into the area to protect this this rig. So a huge escalation, and unfortunately, once again, we're at the brink of some sort of confrontation here in this region, and, uh, and, and again, it just continues to ratchet up month after month. Yeah, I think the important point you made is what is going to be the response from Washington with this. We've already seen the, uh, the increase of the military, the U.S. military presence in the Philippines, which is not being sugarcoated whatsoever, that it is there as a deterrent and as a uh, as a backing for the Philippines against a more assertive China. So, whether the whether the Vietnamese government decides to go down that road, I think is looking more and more likely, unfortunately, uh, which is, as you said, only going to increase and in, inflame these tensions. But James, we'll move on to our second story here from your neck of the woods up there in Japan. We'll take this one from the Asahi Shimbun. Japan aims to keep population at 100 million in 2060s. Quote, the government-appointed panel has proposed measures to counter Japan's rapid decline in population with a goal of stabilising the population at around 100 million in 50 years' time. In an interim report released on the 13th of May, the expert panel called on the government to double its support for parents and accept more foreign skilled workers as key measures to combat this population decline. The government set up the panel under the Council on Economic and Fiscal Policy headed by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in January to discuss measures to counter population decline and other medium and long-term issues. The government plans to reflect the proposal in these guidelines on economic and fiscal policies to be released in June. It will be the first numerical target for the country's population if if the guideline includes the $100 million target. Uh, James, whenever I hear the words government-appointed panel and population in the same sentence, I cringe and start to get the cold sweats. Uh, I, I am glad you brought this to my attention yesterday, and it, it, it kind of shows the flip side of state-sponsored population control. And, and just like the population reduction agenda that we've all know of and you've spoken of in quite specific detail, 
governments are not in the business of improving the lives and the living standards of future generations, but merely maintaining the number of taxable human livestock that are deemed acceptable by whatever particular government panel or shady shady uh, group. Um, I might be being a little bit dramatic, but whenever I hear that type of language, I find it alarming and quite disturbing. But I would like to hear your thoughts on this, James, considering you are there in Japan. Uh, are the failed economic policies of these of Japan's last two decades the main cause of this population decline, or do you think there are other factors that are being failed to be mentioned here? I think there are probably a number of factors that feed into each other, but the economic factor has to be at least one part of it, as unfortunately the economic phenomenon of the working poor in Japan is a rising phenomenon here, one that didn't really exist um, to any notable extent as much as 20 years ago, but has certainly been increasing over the past couple of decades, the the lost decades of stagnation here. Um, so unfortunately, I think that does play into it, along with a number of other societal and cultural factors that I think sometimes get overblown and sensationalized in the Western press as well. But all of those those kind of combine together to create, um, and of course, I mean, as I've talked about in the other aspects of the depopulation agenda, all of the biochemical warfare that, uh, that the population of the globe generally is under, unfortunately also contributes to declining uh, fertility rates in, in the entire industrialized world. Again, I think that's no coincidence with all of these uh, plastics and chemicals and what have you being dumped into our, our waters and into our uh, ecosystems generally. I think that's plays a contributing factor. But I think you're right to say that, I mean, when the government starts talking about controlling population, we do have to uh, at least be a little bit concerned about what that really means and why they're doing it and for what purposes. It is interesting because it does seem to butt up against that uh, depopulation agenda, which, as you say, we've talked about quite a lot here on the Corbett Report. But I think we have to see that agenda, um, which is obviously being furthered by all sorts of foundation-funded NGOs and UN-linked organizations and uh, and groups that link, hearkening back to the uh, Rockefeller Population Council and the like, um, uh, is definitely a, a coordinated, uh, concerted, co- uh, a coordinated effort to to reduce the global population. But I think counteracting that, of course, is every individual government is looking out for its own interests, and as you say, they want to keep the the the, the human chattel, the the, li- the tax livestock, at an acceptable level so they can continue farming the uh, farming the people. And unfortunately, that process will continue for as long as each individual government can allow it to happen. So we see a lot of hand-wringing right now about the situation in Japan, and deservedly so. They're predicting as much as, I believe, a a 50% reduction in the population by the end of the century, which is uh, going to be pretty catastrophic if you're looking at it from an economic point of view. Um, And this also plays into some of the other things happening in the region. For example, um, the Chinese uh, property bubble that is bursting as we speak, and some people are linking that to the demographics in China, which reached a maximum um, population uh, growth at ni- in 1979 and has been declining since then. So we're seeing household formation, etc., declining um, as we speak. So that's going to contribute to the contraction or at least the slowing down of the Chinese economic phenomenon. So that's going to be something that to watch in coming years as well. And again, in many of the countries in the region and of course around the world, this is a, an important problem. As I say, in pretty much every industrialized society, the fertility rate is declining and sometimes quite 
quite dramatically so, as is, as is the case here in Japan. So I think Japan's going to be a canary in the coal mine for this, um, with such a, a, a really low fertility rate, and uh, and we've just started seeing some huge crossovers in the Japanese demographics with uh, adult diapers uh, set to surpass uh, baby diapers uh, sales, um, and all sorts of you know indicators like that 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 this is a, truly is an aging society, and uh, and that's going to create some huge problems in the near future. It's interesting that you pointed out the Western media's take on on the uh, the Japanese population. I, I believe I, I think it was might have been new, one of the previous episodes of New World next week where there was the the article from the Guardian. I think it was where Japanese youth are turned off by sex and no longer having sex. But it always seems to be about Japan, and you're never seeing that uh, any kind of. Uh, bars about China's population decline, which, as you said, has been declining since 1979. I think mainly because they need to keep propping up that narrative that China is this monstrosity, this huge, ever-growing behemoth that you know, has, is, um, has, no, has no limits in sight. But, of course, in certain areas of their demographics, they are, of course, showing signs of decline. And, as you said, the housing bubble there is rapidly declining, and we're definitely going to see that over the next... A couple of years. James, we'll move to our third and final story today. And speaking of declining, unfortunately, the, the topic of our third and final story shows no sign of doing that anytime soon. And uh, despite what both sides of this story are saying, and I'm referring, of course, to the ongoing political crisis that is still happening in Thailand. Uh, the headline reads, rival political groups risk violence by escalating protest. This coming from businessweek.com. Protest leaders on both sides of Thailand's political divide have vowed to bring the latest chapter in an almost decade of unrest to an end this month, increasing the risk of fresh violence, however. With this plan to replace the country's elected government with an appointed council no closer to reality, protest leader Suthep Thaugzaban said he was launching a nine-day campaign to harass remaining government ministers until they resigned. He said his half-year of protest would be finished by May 26th. Parties linked to former Prime Minister Thaksin have won the past five elections, including the 2011 vote that brought his his sister, Yingluck, to power. However, Yingluck stepped down, or was removed rather, on May 7th after the Constitu- Constitutional Court ruled that she abused her power, the third such ruling against a Thaksin-linked leader since the coup. Thaksin's army chief said the military may need to use force to counter clashes after three people were killed this week in a grenade and gun attack on anti-government protests on a pro- in a protest site in Bangkok. If the violence continues to escalate, the military may need to come out in full force to keep the situation under control, said the army chief, signalling the military may consider imposing martial law. Uh, James, we have spoken of this quite in depth, and I'm not really sure what else we have left to say, but of course it is a good thing for the people of Thailand to to come together and to, and to challenge and resist actions of an obviously uh, corrupt regime. But having an issue with a group of people you don't approve of that are ruling over you is a totally normal and uh, sane thing. But thinking that if you just get your team, your guy to do the ruling makes everything all better to me is just unproductive. And uh, I'm just concerned for the people of Thailand that no matter whoever gets put put in charge, that given the, poli- the political situation and, the, and its history, that in 12 months' time we're going to be sitting here talking about the very similar situation, if not worse. Your thoughts? 
Unfortunately, you may be correct about that. And I mean, we just have to look to Egypt as a very recent example of that phenomenon exactly. Um, no matter how noble it is and how right it is to try to get rid of one corrupt uh, thuggish regime, uh, it, re- it really is a question of what's going to replace it. And if you don't get rid of the underlying power structure, then what have you really accomplished? And unfortunately, the power structure is always the one holding the cards because all it requires is that unrest and violence to continue in order to justify the martial law crackdown. And they always have the unrest and violence up their sleeves. I'll point people, of course, to the always informative Alt-Thai News Network at alttainews.blogspot.com, where you can see one of the latest postings talking about Thailand collapsing regime turns to terrorism, in which they talk about some of the uh, the grenades and, and uh, small arms that have been found in the caches of the red shirts, etc., in order, again, to promote the violence that will ultimately lead to the martial law crackdown, which will contribute to the preservation of the status quo. So, again, you're exactly right. It will require more than simply the removal of the old regime in order to really remove the uh, the root of the problem. And that's, of course, the much, much, much bigger question and the much bigger problem. In the exact same sense, this could apply to any political context, United States, Australia, Japan, Canada, wherever it is. Just removing one, go- one government, one face of the problem is not going to, to solve anything. And uh, we have to start growing beyond that mentality and start looking again at what we can actually build up around the governmental system, away from the governmental system, um, in ways that the government, uh, well, can't can't rule on theoretically, and when they actually do try and bring the, the boots to the ground, then of course it's a question of standing up for what's right. So, so again, this is more about I think community building than it is about uh, who's going to be the puppet face of power in the in the coming months. Um, but uh, it will be interesting to see as this develops, and we'll have to obviously keep an eye on it in future editions of APP. Absolutely, we will be keeping our ears to the ground on that. And you have segued me nicely, James. Speaking of uh, puppet puppets in power, I'm just going to blast through a few other headlines that I have been making the rounds here in the Asia-Pacific region on APPerspective.net. Uh, Tony Abbott's austerity budget brings sweeping cuts to Australia's health and education systems, while at the same time increasing defence spending. Uh, this caused wise, widespread protest across Australia this past weekend. Um, also, G20 propaganda... Uh, sorry, G20 information to be included in Queensland's education curriculum as the build-up to the orgy that is, the political orgy that is the G20 looms on the horizon. Speaking of looming on the horizon, TPP continues to loom large as negotiations continue to take place in Vietnam and Singapore. And finally, China also pushes its new Pacific free trade zone at the recent APEC meeting. So some very interesting developments going on politically, James, as always, and geopolitically. Um, anything else on your radar? I believe you have something on the South Korean ferry disaster. That's right. It, uh, we haven't really touched on that in these uh, videos yet, although it's a pretty big political issue there in South Korea. And the latest that I'm seeing is that the President Park Geun-hye has actually committed to disband the South Korean Coast Guard and completely reform that system, um, along with some other uh, ch- political changes that are apparently going to result from all of this. So in one way, that is good because it is a corrupt and, 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 and very uh, unhelpful uh, system that was in place that that did contribute to the, that terrible disaster, but unfortunately, if you read between the lines, it's not necessarily going to be a better thing to take its place. So once again, just another example of that. Unfortunately, so and also just on that note, as one uh, agency seems to contract, also in your neck of the woods, James, the Japan's Self Defense Force, uh, the fast lining of the changes to Article Nine of the Japanese Constitution uh, seems to be going. At quite a pace with Shinzo Abe looking to um, get the changes there to allow Japan to assist its allies in the event of conflict and confrontation. So 
As always, lots of interesting and uh, very important developments happening at pretty much every other minute here in the Asia-Pacific region. As always, people can stay tuned to that by following me at Brock West on Twitter um, and also at www.apperspective.net. Excellent stuff. Well, I'm always interested to see what's developing in the region. Always good to have you there as a source of information. Looking forward to talking to you again next month. Brock, thanks again for your time. Thanks, mate. Talk to you soon.